of you know um, that we had booked the uh, Posh, as we thought, Millennium Hotel for a DV8. Um, I problema, we went there. And, um, you know, the, the pictures on Expedia can only do so much. You know what I'm saying? And uh, Heidi and I had stayed there a couple years ago on a little anniversary uh, shindig and had eaten on the little revolutionary restaurant. Have you guys eaten there? Really cool. You, it rotates. If you get car sick, then you may not want to go. I was popping the dram, I mean. But anyway, um, so we go there on Monday, and, uh, you know, you walk into the Millennium Hotel, you know, like Riverfront St. Louis, views of the Arch and Bush Stadium. You're thinking to yourself, you know, by the chandelier in the lobby, like, this place is going to be incredible. And, uh, and so the guy um, starts walking us through the hotel, and the staff guys are with us, and, and I preach uh, to us all the time, like, being positive. And so we're all, like, trying to be positive, right? We're like okay, this isn't quite what we, what we were expecting, but that's cool. And, um, and, and then, he, um, then he, he takes us to the room. And we walk in this room, and I don't know how many of you guys have ever been in a locker room before, but there's a, there's a particular, um, in the middle, in mid-football season, I played football, in the mid-football season, there was this smell, uh, this aroma that came from a locker room. It was the combination of wet towel and dirty boys. Uh, the, that, that combination is not, is not great, but we walked in and we smelled that, and I was like, oh, and, and by the way, this is the room that he's showing us, right? So you would think, naturally, in marketing, like, they would show you the best that they got, right? So he's like, well, here's one of our suites. I'm like, there ain't nothing sweet about this at all except the stench, you know? Uh, so anyway, he's like, you know, here's our suite. Here's the bed that pops out of the wall. I'm like, how old is this hotel? You know what I'm saying? Like, you have walls, you have beds coming out of the walls. Like, what, you know? And, and then he shows us where the fridge used to be. Now there's a big gaping hole where you can see through the wall. And, and again, we're all trying to be positive. We're like, all right, we can make this work, right? Like, this will be fine. And um, all this to say, I, I had this overwhelming sense after I left that uh, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't selling out like that. You know what I mean? Like, I wanted to do this college conference. I wanted to do everything with excellence. And uh, 1-800-THE-MILLENNIUM was not excellent. And um, this isn't helping their business tonight, I do recognize. Um, all this to say, we ended last week with this question, this profound thought that somehow in our journey of compromise or not compromise, hundreds of opportunities every day, that we would be asking this question, do you love me? So, I'm trying to get out of this contract, which I had signed, you know, and this is going to take a little bit of maneuvering. And, um, and so I called him first, and I'm like, hey, uh, here's the deal. Not quite what we were expecting. Uh, the indoor pool isn't working either. How about, we just, how about you just let us out of the contract? We call it a day. We'll walk away. And he's like, I don't think it works like that. You signed a contract. You're coming. It's going to be a great weekend. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, so I hang up the phone. And in me, there's the sense of if I fudge the truth a bit, if I just twist the truth just a little bit and make up some huge grandiose story that someone in our church just died or something crazy happened, you know, and present some sob story like my wife has, you know, gotten really sick and we need to not come this weekend, whatever it was, then maybe he would let me out of this contract. And so I'm wrestling with this question. And as I sit there at my office thinking like, I have to get out of this, I have to get out of this, I ask the question, do, do I love him? Am I willing to compromise? Even just a little bit. No one would ever know. Like no one, Steve wouldn't know, this guy, our staff wouldn't know. I could just come back to them and say, hey guys, guess what? We, we got let out of the contract. So three or four times I wrestle with this, and I talk to the guy literally ten times between Monday afternoon and Tuesday. And all that to say, 
uh, Tuesday morning, I called the uh, Crown Plaza in Clayton, a little bit of uh, upping the ante. And I was like, here's the thing. Um, I'm trying to buy out of this contract. Could you let us into the Crown Plaza for X amount of dollars, which is way less than what they would normally spend or, or, uh, or basically, uh, what, what am I trying to say? Uh, invoice us for. There we go. That's the appropriate term. And, um, you know, thinking there's no way I'm going to get let out of this contract. So I, I give Steve one more call. I'm like, look, here's the deal. I don't want to come there. Please let me out of this contract. And he's like, okay. I'm like, seriously? And so then the, then the Crown Plaza lady calls. She's like, uh, hey, um, guess what? Like, we can do that price. Which is like, wait. And I'm like, are you serious? And then we went there today. This place is straight baller. I mean... Room, every room has wood floors. Our, our, where we're going to be at for the conference space is like, you know, uh, just awesome. It's, it's great. The stained glass windows, everything. There's like a cross that drops down in the middle of the room, you know. That was fudging the truth there. No compromise. Sorry. But um, anyway, all that to say, um, if, if there's any of you that still are desiring to go to deviate, you're college age. We have a few spots. Uh, like, I can always make more, right? So if you're interested, come and talk to me afterwards because we would love to have you come. It's going to be an incredible weekend. Uh, there's, uh, I think, like 43 of us now, 43 students plus the leaders going, a huge group. We're really excited. We'd love to have you. But that's where we ended last week. But I want to get us up to how we got there. And how we got there goes like this. First slide. We've met two characters. The first is uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, is a very strong ruler. And he, he becomes a strong ruler because he, his father is dying. And so his father hands the reins to Nebuchadnezzar. Next slide. Nebuchadnezzar is from this area of the world called Babylon. And his father was on this huge world conquest to take it all over. And so Nebuchadnezzar continues in that journey. He conquers the Assyrians. He smokes the Egyptians. And then he heads to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, though, worships, next slide, a lowercase god. The scripture has it lowercase, and this God's name is Marduk, or in other circles, Marduk. Now, Marduk is the overarching Babylonian god, but in Babylon, there are gods for everything. There are gods for vegetation and the sky and water, and anything you can think of, there is a god. What we've learned so far about Nebuchadnezzar is this. Next slide. He constantly is asking the question, how can I build my kingdom. That's what's driving Nebuchadnezzar, one side of the coin. The next person we've met is a, a man by the name of Daniel. A Daniel is somewhere when we met him between a 15 and 17 or so, and he's from an area of the world called Judah. Judah was one of the two tribes, uh, one of the 12 tribes, rather, of Israel. It's uh, after the Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Judah was the southern kingdom, and that's where Daniel is from. Daniel worships, on the other hand, a next slide, an uppercase God, Yahweh, the God that we talk about and preach here, who's uh, sent his son Jesus. So Daniel comes from a completely different perspective, and Daniel is asking the question always, how can I love God? So you have one dictator, tyrant, who says, how can I build my kingdom? He worships a lowercase God, and then you have Daniel, who is a wee little lad, and the constant question he's asking, even in the face of an emperor, is how can I love God? Now, last week what happened is Nebuchadnezzar deports 50 to 75 of these Jews. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to try to brainwash you with all kinds of things. And last week, 
we saw Daniel stand. Daniel said, I'm not eating that. You want me to eat from your table, but that goes against the scripture. I'm not defiling myself. And so he talks to one of the chief's assistants and says, look, you give me vegetables and my boys vegetables, my friends, and we'll see who's stronger. You guys know the story. Ten days go by. What happens? They come out and Daniel and, these, and his three friends look better to the eye than the others. And so they change the entire diet of all of them to vegetables. And three years later worth of training, Daniel is this gifted individual. He loves God. He's obsessed with his God. And at every point so far that we've seen that Daniel has to compromise or not, Daniel keeps answering, I love him. And I know that to obey God is to love God. And so compromise, he will not. Now, chapter 2. If uh, you like stories and you like drama and you like NYPD blue, then you're going to love this text tonight. Open your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. Is NYPD Busa on the, uh, on the scene? Okay, good to know. All of you uh, love NYPD Blue. The page number is on the screen. Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be teaching all of 16 verses tonight. One of my favorite sections here in this whole book of Daniel. Are you ready to go, my friends? Here we go, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, already we have some problems. Why? How many years has Daniel been trained? Three, uh, and, and what year did we, did we begin this whole journey? 605 B.C., which was what? The first year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So what's happening here? Is this during the training? Are we like now like backtracking? I've already mentioned to you that there's two different calendar systems that we're working with here. The Jewish calendar system and the Babylonian calendar system. The Babylonian calendar system does not count the first year as a year of reign. They also count partial calendar years. Okay, you're like, who cares? Here's the point. This is after the training, okay? They've been trained. Now this is probably 603 B.C., three years' worth of training in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Uh, how many of you guys have reoccurring dreams, right? How many of you guys have ever had the dream where, like, you're falling from the building, and then you, like, pop up, you know, like, you wake up, right, because you're... Right? Dreams are such a powerful thing in us. It, it's crazy. Like, we'll wake up, like, sweating sometimes from these, freaked out from these dreams, joyed at times from these dreams. Like, we dreamed we won the lottery or, like, these, whatever, these crazy things. And then we'll wake up and then somehow we can't remember them. They hold some power in our culture. But nowhere near the power in the East Orient. In this area of the world, dreams, and particularly, particularly with kings, held tremendous value. When a king especially had a dream, I mean, it was, it was huge. And what do we see here? He didn't just have a dream. He had what? Dreams, okay, plural. He had many. And the scripture says they were, they were troubling him. His spirit was troubled. He was wrestling. These were dreams that scared him, that, that gave him great fear and trepidation. Have you ever had one of those, right? A dream where you woke up and you were shaking because it felt so incredibly real. You can picture yourself then as Nebuchadnezzar. He's a very scared king. Verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. One of the benefits of being a king, you pay people to interpret dreams, right? And in fact, the whole premise 
of Chaldean culture, Babylonian culture, is magic, sorcery, witchcraft. All of this is a piece of the culture. So what does he do? I'm having bad dreams? No problem. I pay these people to interpret dreams. So he summons them, and they gather. And I want to say one more note. Listen, they were so into dreams in Babylon that they had dream manuals. Now let me explain. When someone would have a dream, they would take note of it, and then they would map out the rest of their life, and they would write all of this down, just like this, right? They would write all of it down, and so whenever anyone had a similar dream, they would say, well, I guess your destiny is going to be like this. Listen, they had thousands and thousands and volumes full of these dream manuals, and so here comes the enchanters and the sorcerers carrying these huge dream manuals ready to interpret the king's dream. So they came in and stood before the king, verse 3. And the king said to them, I had a dream. Uh, I have a dream there, right? Anyone? You're right. I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to what? What what does the word say? To know the dream. There's a couple different uh, variations here, a couple different ways to interpret this. One, um, he's forgotten the dream. And so he wants to even know what he dreamed. He knows that it caused trouble in him, that it troubled him, that it provoked his spirit, and now he wants to know it. That's one possible interpretation. Or he simply wants to know what it meant. I think it's probably a combination of the two. Have you ever had a dream and you've been describing it to someone else, and you're like going through it, and then you get halfway through and you're like, I don't even know. I know I was in 7-Eleven wearing a clown costume with the Rams, like, you know, head, a a mascot head on me, but I'm not sure what happened. Like, you you get in, like, telling the dream, and then you just forget, right? So I think it's a combination of the both. I I think he desires interpretation of the dream, but I also think he probably forgot some of the details. But he knows this, that it vexed him, that there was great angst in him, that when he had these dreams, it scared him because they spoke of his future, And so he uh, wants them to tell uh, the interpretation of it, verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. Now this is interesting. Crazy interesting. Check this out. The Old Testament is written in what? Anyone? Hebrew. Except in three sections. Three sections in the Old Testament, there is a little bit of a switch to Aramaic. This is the longest section in the Old Testament that is written in Aramaic. So from chapter 2, verse 4 here, all the way to uh, chapter 7, verse 28, it's not written in Hebrew, but written in, in Aramaic, uh, Aramaic rather. Uh, you're like, so who cares? It, it's a beautiful language. It's kind of like, I think we have some French students here. It's kind of Frenchish, right? Uh, Hebrew has a little bit of, like a little bit of, huh, you know, like a little bit of jerk, you know, a little bit of something, something there to it, right? And, and Greek is very, like, rigid, but Aramaic, like, is beautiful, it's, it's almost romantic, right? It just kind of flows. I'll show you. It's not a romantic word, but I'll show you one later, and you'll get it. It's actually a very troubling word. Uh, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Uh, here's their philosophy. You tell us the dream, we'll make up whatever we want because we're the guys that get paid to do it. It's like a magic eight ball, right? I mean, they're they're sitting there, and they're like, all right, will I have, you know, and and the the magic eight ball turns, okay, here you go, king. Interpreters of dreams are in a great spot because dreams are crazy. And so if you can at least perceive or put off the fact that you can interpret them, like no one's going to battle you. It's like, well, you're 
you're the sorcerer, you're the magician, so it must be true. So they say, okay, tell us the dream, it'll be all good, we'll interpret it for you. Everyone gives a Nebuchadnezzar high five and we walk away. Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Someone's a little testy, right? Like, he hasn't been sleeping well, and uh, so he just resorts just to complete severity. I mean, he's, not only do you need to tell me the interpretation, you need to tell me before I do the dream. If you can't, uh, slice and dice, right? Like, you are going to be cut to pieces, but not just that. What does the scripture say? Your house will be laid in what? In ruins. The Aramaic word is navalu. See what I'm saying? It's like kind of... That kind of has a novelu, but it means manure, okay? Um, so, so novelu, to, to have a house that's laid in ruins in the ancient tradition, it's literally for your house to become an outhouse. That's what it is. So here's the deal, uh, all you sorcerers and magicians. You're going to tell me what the dream was. You're going to interpret it for me. If you can't, you all die, and your house becomes an outhouse, which means what? It's not just going to affect you, but what? Your family. Okay? Um, this is a man that is very fearful. This is a man that is one of the world emperors. And this is his response. Do you understand how significant this is? Can you get the weight of this? He has trained all of these deported Jews, 50 to 75 of them, in magic, sorcery, witchcraft, knowledge, wisdom, all of these things. He's trained them. And what he's proposing, if you cannot tell me this dream, I'm killing all of you. All of the people that are some of the most prominent people in his culture, he is so scared, so dominated by a particular kind of feeling, which we'll talk about later, that he's willing to wipe out some of his best advisors just so that he can feel powerful. Unbelievable stuff. Verse 6, but if you show the dream and in its interpretation, you, re- you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Can you imagine all of these sorcerers in the room at this point, right? They're like, what, like how, how is this possible? Verse 7. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, right? We'll gloss over the whole killing piece, okay? I know you said that, but look, just tell us the dream. Let's renegotiate here, Millennium Hotel. Let's figure it out, right? Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. Verse 8. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. He's like, he's calling their bluff. And I love this about Nebuchadnezzar. Though I'll I'll be very harsh on Nebuchadnezzar as we journey through Daniel um, because, honestly, we relate to him a lot. He's a very wise and brilliant military official. He's a phenomenal architect. He creates a garden that becomes one of the seven wonders of the world. He's a brilliant man. And what he says here is, you say that you're my sorcerers and magicians? Come on now, seriously. He doesn't even believe in his own system at this point. He's gotten so angst. He, like he had, just has so much angst in him that he's throwing out his whole system that he believes in so much. He's calling their bluff. Verse 9. If you, uh, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you show me its interpretation. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. As much as as they've blown smoke in the past, as much as they've taken people's dreams and just said whatever, now they say something pretty brilliant. There's no man that can do this. You're asking us something that's impossible. There has been no king that has ever asked an enchanter magician to do this. And yet you sit before us as king and you're asking us to do the impossible. We can't do that. Setting up the drama. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the what? Except the gods, whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Their second brilliant statement, no man can do this, and only who can do this? The gods. Pause. Do you see what happens here? Do you see this? Oftentimes when we're reading through the scripture, if we don't just take a second and pause and step back, we miss something beautiful. What's beautiful about this piece? It shows the relationship of the Babylonians to their gods. No man can do this. Only the gods can. And they're saying we can't do it, implying what? They have no relationship with the gods. If only the gods can do it, and they are but mere men and no men can do it, then what they're saying is, we have no way to communicate with the gods so that then the gods could communicate the the dream to us and then we to you. They're revealing the Babylonian godal structure. No relationship. Doesn't it just give you such, such, such hope to have relationship with not the lowercase God, but the true uppercase God in the universe. You can know that God, can speak with that God, can have intimate relationship and connection with that God, that these, all these magicians and sorcerers, though they thought they had this intimate thing, you through Christ can have it. Beautiful. And yet we downplay it, don't take advantage of it. We, we take it for granted all of the time. And yet this Babylonian structure is set up so that the gods stay distant from the people. Unbelievable. Verse 12. Because of this, the king was uh, angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Everyone dies. Right? Uh, this is the thing that, again, if we just watch Veggie Tales, we don't get it. And I'll, I'll keep coming back to this point because you need to understand this. All of the wise men, every wise man in the whole culture of Babylon is about ready to die. This isn't a pipe dream. This isn't a fairy tale. This is real, legitimate death. He's going to send out executioners, and all of the people that have had great access to Nebuchadnezzar are getting ready just to be completely wiped off the face of the planet. Verse 13, so the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought who? Daniel and his companions to kill them, which tells us what? What does this tell us? Daniel was still in his apprenticeship, okay? Though he's out of his three-year of training, he's not like in the king's inner circle. He had to be sought out. So he wasn't a part of all of these enchanters and sorcerers and magicians that were there before the king. He has to be sought out. Verse 
15, he declared to Arioch. Well, who is Arioch? Look at the end of verse 14. The captain of the king's guard. Some people say that God is not sovereign and that doesn't have control and that isn't setting up events. There are multiple executioners. Who shows up to Daniel's door? Who? The king's executioner. The top executioner, right? Is that even a ter- is, like, is that appropriate terminology? The head executioner, right? The guy who kills the most people according, like this guy is hard, this guy is the closest to the king. Now why would this be significant? Because whatever happens between Daniel and this guy, this guy would have the most access to the king. If it's a lower executioner, no access to the king, so it doesn't matter. But this guy, this guy has access. Look what happens. Uh, so, so the decree went out and the wise men were to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions. Verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. This king, the, the captain's king, the captain's executioner, shows up, and the scripture says that Daniel replies with prudence. You're looking at an 18 or 19-year-old boy who is being faced with the death penalty. And the scripture says he replies with composure. Can you imagine yourself at 18 or 19, anyone? Can you remember back to those days? Can you remember back to those days, right? Yeah. Did you feel like you have much composure at that, at that time? Did you feel like your, your life was marked by prudence or chaos, right? Here you have a guy who's been deported from his family, left for, left from his culture. He's already had one particular time where he could have died, and now a death sentence is surely facing him, and the scripture says he replies with composure. Right? Look at this. He had gone out to kill the, the wise men of Babylon, verse 15. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree of the king so urgent? Like what, why, why are we hurrying through this? What's the, why, why is this happening so fast? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Okay, I don't know what you know about executions. Uh, normally there's no conversation, okay? You die, I'm here to kill you. You stand over here, we'll, we'll take care of it, right? D- Daniel replies with composure, and the scripture says prudence. Then what happens? Arioch tells Daniel what's going on. They sit down and like have coffee, right? Like have muffins and crumpets. Is that cr- Whatever, Babylonian Danishes, what, they, they have a conversation. Ariarch like spills what's happening. Well, Daniel, check this out. I know I'm an executioner as he sets his sword behind him, right? Here's what happened. The king, he's freaking out. He had this dream. All of this stuff is happening. I'm here. I'm supposed to kill all these people. How are you doing today, Daniel? Is everything? I mean, they're like talking. He's making the matter known to him. God has provided again much favor for Daniel. Verse 16. And Daniel went in and requested the king. Pause. Apparently, through this conversation with Ariarch, Daniel has, has got some moments with one of the world emperors. The world emperor has already judged Daniel before. So he may know him. There may be some kind of background of relationship here. But he goes into the king. And look at this. And Daniel went and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel's approach, and some may say he's got nothing to lose, right? That's one theory. He's got nothing to lose. Hey, Ariarch, be buddy-buddy with me. Don't kill me now. I can interpret this dream. Trust me, promise, right? So some could say he has nothing to lose. 
I believe there's something different, though, happening in Daniel. There's something deeper. There's a trust, a, a faith, a composure where he has the gumption to walk into the king's court and say, you give me a time as an 18 or 19-year-old kid looking at Nebuchadnezzar, all the gold, the throne, everything's there, the incense, right? It's all happening. You give me a time and I'll interpret your dream. Now, we know by the next verse, and that's where we'll begin next week, that he gets his time. What happens next week, you'll have to wait for next week, but we have much more work to do now. Put up my uh, base slide there if you could. Now, there's something unbelievable that happens in this story, and we have much work to do to get there. There's one man who worships a lowercase god who is one of the world emperors. He um, starts to have these dreams that gives him great angst. They're bothering him. His spirit's provoked. And what is his initial reaction? His initial reaction is complete insecurity. The king of the modern world acts like a little boy who's lost his new Christmas toy. I mean, this guy just... He, he's acting irrational. He's killing all of some of his best advisors. He is just completely acting out of insecurity. This guy who's wearing gold and silver and all, he, he has access to all the power of the world, and yet he acts like a little kid who's gone insecure. You see this? So he instantly lashes out. He wastes no time. Bring them all in. You tell me the dream. You tell me the interpretation. If you can't, I'm killing you, potentially your family. Your house will be in ruin. Everything's over. Everything's done. This man is completely insecure. Then you have on the other side of the coin a man who worships an uppercase God, Yahweh. Uh, This man has a similar piece of chaos in his life. There's a major point of angst. An executioner has come and said, you will die now. And yet he acts with prudence and composure. And the one who by age is considered immature acts like a noble king. The equation is simple, isn't it? Let's let's do the equation. You worship a lowercase god, you will in times of angst And in times of joy, act out of insecurity. Man worships lowercase God, has no security. There's nothing to be secure in. We saw it in the in the Babylon we saw it in the Babylonians who were saying only the gods can do this. They have no relationship with the gods, and so there's no security. Their whole listen, their whole life is like they're a canoe in a hurricane. Right? You can picture it. I mean, a canoe in a hurricane stands no chance. It's blown by every wave and every little breeze. It just, it will affect it. So, lowercase God, the worship of it by any man equals no security and causes a life of insecurity. Everything that happens, good or bad, will keep turning inward, causing you to always making sure that everyone is okay in all the relationships. Is, is everyone, am, I, am I approving of everyone? Is everyone cool? And it causes you just to, in, in your mind, just to wrestle with, it causes you to do irrational things. Has insecurity ever caused you to do irrational things, my friends? So that's one side of the equation. The other side is tough for us. Man worships an uppercase God. 
the God and has security. Trust. Faith. Enough to say, show me the king and I believe that God will prevail. Put me in there. I'm 18 or 19 years old, but I believe. I trust. Can we agree the equations seem simple? Lowercase God equals insecurity. Worship of an uppercase God of our God of Yahweh reveals security and trust. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's got it all under his hand. Problem. Why then do so many Christians seem insecure? If the equations are this simple, this black and white, why then are so many people who say they, they love Jesus, they love God, they follow Christ, why do they appear so insecure? Why do they appear like they have no sense of identity? Why, why do they appear like they're a canoe in a hurricane and when tragedy hits, they run for the hills instead of standing firm because their God is in control? What does it say about us? What does it say about us? Are we more like Nebuchadnezzar than we first thought? Are we more like a man who thinks that, that he knows the God that he worships and yet in tragedy and in true joy reveals that, that they don't because they act like there's nothing to trust? Because ultimately they're looking inside and, and you know that you'll fail and so we get insecure. What does it reveal about us, church? I think for us, there's a huge step that has to be taken back from last week. I told you last week this. There's all these moments that come in our life, compromise or not, compromise or not, compromise or not. And in every one of those questions, we're answering, do you love me? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Do you love me? We said it's not perfection. The scripture says, if we fail, if we say that we don't fail, we're a liar, First John says. So we know that there will be sin. But our acceptance of his grace shows that we love him. Not taking advantage of it, right? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. I'll obey. So what's the question here? Ah. If you just want to answer, do you trust me? Before you answer, do you obey me? That is the problem in the church. We're trying to trust without obedience. We're disconnected from obedience. And then in these huge moments where we have to completely say, God, I'm in your hands, we cannot trust because we have not obeyed. There is no trust. We believe in a God that's wavering instead of a God that's true to himself and therefore will always be the God that is faithful when we're faithless. Do you see it? If we're not answering yes to do you love me and then you think somehow you can answer yes to do you trust me, it doesn't work that way. Try it, friends, in your relationships. We obey first and then we trust. Because through that obedience we see, yes, he is faithful. Through my disobedience, his grace remains. Through my obedience, I see more of him. He is faithful. Tragedy hits. 
do you trust me? Yes, God. Who else could I trust? Because when tragedy hit, this person failed me. They didn't know what to say. I didn't know where to turn. I was struggling. I tried this, and I tried this substance, and I tried all of these things, and I didn't know where to go. Do you see, church? I fear that we're more like Nebuchadnezzar than we are Daniel. I fear that we're more gripped by insecurity than we are true trust and faith. And I don't think it's a trust issue. I think it's the question that we asked last week. I think that the more we learn to obey, church, the more we will be blessed to trust. And when he says, do you trust me? Do you trust me? The answer has to be yes. Now, both of these men do something the same. They do a lot different, but they both do one thing the same. Their responses are what? Instantaneous, right? Instantly, at Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he's freaking out. They walk in the room to Daniel. What does he do? Instantly responds with prudence, composure. Check out this last slide. In Psalm 16, verse 4, the psalmist says, the sorrows of those who run after, uh, who run after another God shall multiply. So I want you to look at those words. Nebuchadnezzar runs to his insecurity. He runs. Nothing will get in his way. He has to get there. Daniel runs to his God. There's nowhere else to go. He has to get there. Both of these men run. They run to what they know. They run to, they run to what they trust. They run to what they can cling on to. But the scripture gives us this promise. The man who runs to a lowercase God, his sorrows will multiply. Whatever that is, whatever substance, relationship, thing you think you can run to for encouragement and trust, trust me, and the scripture confirms it, it will only multiply your sorrows. And yet, you and I have the opportunity to run to the cross. Nothing will get in my way. Nothing. No person, no relationship, no sin. Uninhibited run, sprint. I have to get there. There's nowhere else to go. I, I can trust in nothing else. I'm tired of living for myself. There's no other king in this world that I desire to serve more than you. I will run and nothing will get in my way. And when I get there, oh God, I will trust and I will cling to you because there's nowhere else to go, oh God. Church, what does it look like just to run to him? No more tiptoeing around out of shame. No more just gliding like we're a, a canoe in a, what does it look like just to run to him? Open arms saying, God, I've got nowhere else to go. I desire to obey and I know you're calling me to trust. And so here I sit in your grips, in your love. Daniel ran to his God and responded in tragedy with faith. Can we run there, church? Me and you. Nothing stopping. Nothing in the way. And I guarantee you, that run will not turn back void.
God in his pursuit welcomes those responding to his initiation. What's wrong, church? God, I ask by your power and for your glory that we would not respond out of a lack of faith or fear or insecurity. That we'd stop turning to ourselves for guidance or help. That we would not look to others first or self-help or some book. But that we would turn to you and run to you, run away from the world and sit at the foot of your cross being reminded of your grace that allows us to obey and trust. God, would you stir our hearts tonight to run? God, would you cause an angst in us that just, just, just longs, Father, and will not stop until we get to you, oh God? Will you give us that picture tonight? And God, will you receive us as the psalmist prayed in your arms of mercy? Stand and respond.